Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray now for the preaching of your word, and we ask for your Spirit's help in this moment. We ask that your Spirit prepare us for what we have to hear, that we might receive it by faith, receive it with hearts of obedience, and that we might respond rightly towards your truth. We pray all of this for your glory, for our good, and in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'd say that one of the distinctives in our corporate worship is the priority of expository preaching. That's where we're committed to letting the text of Scripture direct and inform what we say in the pulpit and how we say it. That means we make every effort to ensure that the topic and the tone of our sermons match the topic and tone of the passage that we're preaching. Now, that's a commitment that we make right up front and one that we try to consistently stick to so that when we arrive at a passage that addresses a difficult subject and and carries with it a sharper tone, you know we're not going to shy away from it. And at the same time, you know we're not looking to be controversial or to be unnecessarily harsh in our preaching. We're just looking to faithfully reflect and proclaim the topic and the tone of the text. Well, since we're in a prophetic book like Malachi, it's expected that the tone of our passage will be a prophetic tone, a sharp tone that may cut to the heart. But be assured, be assured that Malachi is not like some madman wielding a knife, but more like a surgeon working with a scalpel. He's going to cut, it's going to hurt, but it's intended to do good, to excise what's causing harm, and to lead to to healing for your body and soul. So I'm saying all this in advance because this morning's passage is going to be hard for some of us to hear. We're going to expose in our passage the spiritual dangers of mixed faith marriages and divorce. Now, I know these are sensitive topics because they hit close to home for some of us. And since they're such personal topics, preaching on them publicly might seem inappropriate. But what we need to realize, which is a point that Malachi is going to make later, is that our private affairs can have public consequences. Whom you marry And whether you stay married may feel like just your own business. It may feel like just a a private family matter. But these matters have public consequences for the entire covenant community of God. That would be Israel in Malachi's day and the church in our day. So that's why we're going to tackle these private topics in our public worship. Because it's there in the text but also because it impacts the health of our worshiping community. Now, friends, if you look at our passage, there's a key word that pops up five times. It's the word faithlessness. Faithless. Other translations say to deal treacherously. That's the NASB. Or to break faith. You find that in the NIV. Or to betray in the NLT. It's the same Hebrew word found in other prophetic books for really any act of unfaithfulness by a spouse. So the theme of our text is 
faithlessness to your vows, whether it's to each other or to God. If you've betrayed the covenant that binds you to your spouse, then you're more than likely to betray the covenant that binds you to your Lord. A dismissive attitude towards the covenant of marriage reveals an underlying apathy in your covenant relationship with God. And not only is your oneness with God threatened, betraying marriage will result in betraying your covenant community. It threatens the very oneness of God's people. So, friends, I hope you see that there is far more at stake than just what goes on in your private life. So that's why we're going to tackle this very sensitive topic. Now, I've divided this message up into three sections. First, we're going to look at the profaneness of mixed-faith marriages. Second, we'll consider the betrayal of divorce. And third, we'll talk about the hope of godly offspring. So let's begin by examining the profaneness of mixed-faith marriages. In verses 10 to 12, Malachi addresses the growing problem of Israelites marrying someone outside of the Jewish faith. Now, recall with me that these Israelites that we're talking about are those who have returned to their homeland after the Babylonian exile. So it's been about 60 to 70 years since the return. So this is a new generation of Israelites. This is, this is really the same generation uh, that you read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So it was a time marked by spiritual apathy and spiritual compromise, particularly when it's related to marriage. And so the problem that we're going to find addressed in our passage is actually dealt with in the more narrative book of Ezra in chapters 9 and 10. And I highly recommend you uh, reading chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra after this sermon so you can get a better handle of the larger context. Well, let me just read verse 10 again. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, notice with me Malachi's emphasis on the spiritual oneness of God's people. He stresses there how the Israelites share one father and one creator God. So there is this deep unity and oneness marking the covenantal community of God, and yet they are threatening that oneness by their faithlessness. Malachi goes on to accuse the people of profaning the covenant of their fathers. That is the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A promise to bless them so that through their offspring, they might be a blessing to all peoples, to all nations of the earth. But they have profaned and desecrated that covenant And not only that, in verse 11 it says, they have profaned and desecrated the sanctuary of God, the the temple. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Now, what could Judah have done to have caused such desecration? What wrong did these Israelites commit? Well, just look back at verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the desecration of the covenant and of the temple resulted from marrying the daughters of the surrounding pagan nations. Now, let's be very clear here, my friends. 
The problem had nothing to do with mixing ethnicities. It was about mixing faiths. Notice the stress there on marrying a daughter of a foreign god. So in fact, scripture is actually replete with mixed race marriages. And I think probably the the best example of that would be Boaz, a Jewish man, marrying Ruth, the Moabitess. But of course, a key moment in Ruth's narrative is her conversion to to the worship of Yahweh. She abandoned her pagan gods and she committed herself to the Lord, to the God of Naomi, her widowed mother-in-law. So that's key there, is she now became a follower and worshiper of the Lord. So scripture affirms two people of different ethnicities becoming one flesh in the covenant of marriage. Any, any Christian or any church that teaches otherwise, that condemns mixed-race marriages, they really have no biblical grounds to stand on. Mixed-race marriages are God-honoring. They're God-pleasing, beautiful unions. But Malachi has mixed-faith marriages in mind. Now, what's the difference there? Why would a mixed-race marriage be considered beautiful in the eyes of God, but a mixed-faith marriage be called faithless and profane? Well, friends, it really has to do with allegiance. It has to do with your ultimate allegiance. The God of Israel demands absolute, ultimate allegiance from his people. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Friends, the Lord God does not share his throne. So for an Israelite to become one flesh with another, to enter into a spiritual union of marriage with someone whose allegiance is given to another father, whose allegiance is given to another creator God, would be to violate the covenant that binds you to the Lord. Because you and your spouse are one flesh in his eyes, your mixed allegiance is a betrayal of your ultimate allegiance to him. And it's also a betrayal of the covenant community with whom you share one holy calling as one holy chosen people. Mixed faith marriages compromise the holy status and the holy mission of God's people to be witnesses of his holiness to all the peoples of the earth. Remember that under the old covenant, God's covenant covenant people were identifiable as a particular ethnic group with its own distinct culture, its own distinct cultural and religious practices. To be Jewish is really unique in that it is both a religious and ethnic identity, an identity that is passed down from parents to children, from one generation to the next. So from ancient Judaism to modern Judaism, there has always been a concern over the issue of mixed faith marriages. In recent Pew surveys, for example, Jewish Americans tend to pull higher than other religious groups in their prevalence towards mixed-faith marriages, especially compared to evangelical Protestants, Catholics, and Muslims. And that's led a growing number of leaders within the Jewish community to express alarm over the slow erosion of a distinct Jewish identity. 
because a large majority of these mixed-faith marriages are not raising their children in the Jewish faith. And that, of course, relates to the concern that Malachi raises there in verse 15, the concern for godly offspring. Both ancient and modern efforts to deter mixed-faith marriages within the Jewish community are really viewed as a fight for the survival of the Jewish people. From the viewpoint of a persecuted minority, you can understand that the gradual loss of a distinct Jewish identity is considered to be an existential threat. Now, rabbis who do raise this concern are very quick to clarify that they're not opposed to a Jew marrying a Gentile per se, as long as that Gentile converts or at least commits to raising any offspring as Jews. Ethnicity, again, is not the issue. It's faith. As long as you circumcise your sons, as long as you keep the Sabbath, as long as you you maintain other Jewish practices, you are raising your children as Jewish. Jewish identity and the Jewish community is preserved. So that is a very simple solution. But the solution is not as straightforward for Christians. Because as Christians, we are under a different covenant than Jews, even though we both claim to to worship the God of Abraham. And a key characteristic of the new covenant, the covenant that we are under, is that the new covenant community of God is no longer tied to ethnicity. Unlike Israel, the church is not a distinct ethnic people group. Under the new covenant, we don't expand the people of God by giving birth, but by leading people to experience the new birth. So in other words, you might be able to raise your kids as Jewish, but you can't raise your kids as Christians. Now, sure, you can and and you should raise your kids with Christian values and Christian teachings, and you should try to raise them in a Christian environment. But friends, you, you cannot pass down a Christian identity to your children. Your children, like everyone else, must be born again, which occurs not by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by the grace of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign, gracious work of the Spirit. Now, okay, does that then mean that mixed faith marriages are no longer a concern for those under the new covenant? If salvation results from the grace of God and not from the particular way that you raise your kids, then does it not matter anymore if your spouse is of another faith or just holds no faith at all? Well, if you draw that conclusion, I think you're underestimating the influence exerted by two godly parents seeking to raise their children in a gospel-rich environment. And I don't, mean, I don't just mean agreeing to send your kids to church. I'm talking about living out your faith together as husband and wife, father and mother. In his book, Handing Down the Faith, How Parents Pass Their Religion On to the Next Generation, Sociologist Christian Smith draws conclusion from years of research following the religious lives of American young people, and he concludes this. Listen, in almost every case, 
No other institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents do. Not religious congregations, youth groups, faith-based schools, missions and service trips, summer camps, Sunday school, youth ministers, or anything else. Now, those influences can reinforce the influence of parents, but almost never do they surpass or override it. What makes every other influence pale into virtual insignificance is the importance, or not, of the religious beliefs and practices of American parents in their ordinary lives, not only on holy days, but every day throughout weeks and years. Smith goes on to argue that statistically speaking, American youth who have grown up to be religiously committed almost always had parents who themselves were religiously committed. Now, of course, of course there are exceptions. I I would be one of those exceptions, having grown up in a non-religious home. But exceptions just reinforce, reinforce our earlier point that the salvation of your children ultimately rests on the grace of God. It's ultimately of the Lord. But even so, Statistically speaking, mixed-faith marriages result in less religiously committed children compared to marriages where parents share the same faith. And from a Christian perspective, you can see how mixed-faith marriages face challenges that make it less conducive for children to be raised in an environment where they are regularly exposed to the gospel, the one thing that can actually save them. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Well, you might be thinking, well, hey, you know, we weren't really planning on having kids anyway, so this concern doesn't really concern us. But before you too quickly dismiss what I'm saying, just remember. Remember Malachi's concern that your primary allegiance remain with the Lord. And so in that sense, a mixed-faith marriage will still profane the new covenant just as it does the old. You see, every marriage... Every marriage is centered on something. Very often, it's a shared set of values and aspirations. And, you know, some religions share enough values in common that adherents from differing faiths can can marry and they can still experience a good deal of harmony because you have so many shared values. Now, sure, there's going to be a need for some practical compromises when it comes to deciding where you're going to regularly worship, if you do at all on how you're going to observe certain religious holidays. So there are some, you know, logistics to work out there. But, you know, with mutual respect, you can make it work because in the end, you share so many of the same values and aspirations, even if your religious practices differ. But friends, that kind of arrangement, that kind of arrangement won't work for Christianity. Because at the center of Christianity is not a set of values or a set of religious practices, but but rather a person, the person of Jesus Christ with whom every Christian is bound together in a covenant relationship. So just imagine the difficulty of orbiting your life around Jesus as your gravitational center while trying to live as one flesh with a spouse who is orbiting around something or someone else, even if that someone is you. 
two satellites orbiting around two different gravitational centers may find that their paths are aligned for a while. But for how long? With different gravitational centers, I'm afraid they are set on a collision course. In the same way, you might find that the person that you're dating right now or the person that you're married to is so aligned with you that you feel like your faith differences are, are negligible compared to all that you hold in common. But you know, there are really only three plausible outcomes here. One, either your non-Christian spouse is somehow converted to Christianity, and I, I, I know that's your heart's desire, but like with your kids, you know that that's not something that you can accomplish. You know that's not something that you can guarantee. Second, another option is that you and your non-Christian spouse collide at some point in the future, resulting in a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and, and potentially a divorce. Or third, you slowly recenter your life around whatever it is that your spouse is orbiting even if that something is seemingly harmless, like, like your family. And now you can have what feels like a very harmonious marriage, but it's a marriage where Christ is no longer at the center, no longer at the center of your life. And in that sense, you betrayed and profaned his new covenant. Now, sadly, from just my personal observation, that third outcome is often the most likely. And this is why the New Testament reinforces that God's people should marry within the community of faith. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, the Apostle Paul instructs those who have the opportunity to marry that they are free to marry whom they wish, but only, quote, only in the Lord. Only someone in a covenant relationship with the Lord, just as you are in that same covenant. So I hope you see, friends, that these are not just arbitrary rules. The, the, the concern here is ultimately for your covenant relationship with God, for your potential offspring's covenant relationship with God, and for the witness of our covenant community to communicate to the world that Christ is Lord and Christ is the only one worthy to be the center of our lives. That is our message. That is our witness and that is affected by mixed-faith marriages. Now, in verses 12 to 13, Malachi talks about a second thing that the Israelites do in response to God's judgment against their covenantal uh, faithlessness. But before we look at the second thing that they do, I want to focus on verses 14 to 16 and the betrayal of divorce. This is our, our second point. Because I, I think the issue of divorce is not a third thing that they do later, but rather it's related to that first thing, which is overall covenantal faithlessness. So look with me at verse 14. Here the Israelites are questioning why the Lord is displeased with them, why he rejects their worship. And listen, but you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept our worship? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So those same key words pop up. 
the words faithless and covenant. The point is that divorce is another act of betrayal to the covenant before God and before the covenant community. Now, we're probably dealing with related scenarios with the mixed faith marriage. We can easily imagine an Israelite man divorcing his first wife, his Jewish wife of his youth, in order to go and marry a pagan wife. That's likely what was happening. Now, if you just look at verse 14 alone, you can learn a whole lot about God's original intent for marriage. Notice how the Lord serves here as a witness to our marriage covenants, which really, if you think about it, is the very goal of any wedding ceremony. It's to make public vows with God as your primary witness. Notice as well how how the man's wife is called his companion. That word there is used elsewhere elsewhere in Scripture to refer to a close friend with whom you have shared interests, which is implying that God does intend for a certain closeness and affection to be between spouses. That means marriage should not just be a means for societal advancement or for financial gain. Closeness, affection, love, companionship should be there. And notice as well how she's described as your wife by covenant. You see, in ancient cultures and ancient law codes, like the ancient Babylonian code of Hammurabi, for example, uh, marriage was really treated like a contractual agreement between a man and his wife. But the God of Israel, he designed marriage not as a contract between two people, but as a covenant that really points to his covenant with his own people. You see, in a contract... Partners commit to each other based on certain conditions being met. You stick with a contractual partner. You are loyal to your contractual partner because they've met certain conditions. And therefore, they deserve your relationship. They have earned your relationship. But in a covenant, things are different. In a covenant, partners commit to one another without conditions. They exchange with one another love and commitment, not as a reward for meeting certain conditions, but as a gift of grace without a view to conditions. That's a marriage by covenant and not just by contract. Now Malachi continues in verse 15 to affirm God's original intent for marriage by grounding his opposition to divorce in the very creation order that that was established in the beginning. Uh, Look how he alludes to Genesis 2.24 when he says, quote, "Did Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So this way uh, of arguing for the permanence of marriage and against the frivolousness of most divorces that occur, it reminds me really of Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, which we read earlier in our home worship. He also grounds his opposition to divorce in God's original design for marriage found in Genesis 2.24 for marriage to be an inseparable one-flesh union. Now, of course, 
he, he mentions in Matthew 19 that Mosaic law made some accommodations for divorce, but that's only because of the hardness of human hearts. In other words, the law was given in order to regulate what was already a common yet cruel practice of sending away wives for frivolous reasons. But Jesus made it clear that God intended for the permanence of marriage from the beginning, for, for no one to separate what God has joined together. That was always the plan. That is the design. Now, in Matthew 19, Jesus does give the exception clause that, that, that we're aware of. The, the, the legitimate grounds for divorce would be in cases of sexual immorality, or in other words, adultery. But, you know, even in such cases, even in those exceptional circumstances, divorce is not necessarily prescribed. It's merely allowed. But here in Malachi, what's in view is, is not that exception case. What's in view is the kind of divorce that really stems from a spirit of covenantal faithlessness and betrayal. It's really the, the, the most common explanation for divorce in our day. We just fell out of, fell out of love. We just drifted apart, and now we're, we're just different people. And that's why verse 15 ends with a warning to guard yourself, to guard yourself in your spirit, to guard your heart, what's going on in there. Now, verse 16 concludes with an even stronger warning. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, there are some textual discrepancies in this verse, which results in two competing translations in the English. So essentially, some translations, like the ESV, emphasize the man's hate for the wife of his youth. He no longer loves her and divorces her. But other translations, like in the NIV, will emphasize God's hate for divorce. And those are obviously two different translations, and actually there are good arguments for either option. But in either case, the overall message is still clear. The overall message is that God is opposed to divorce. And by divorcing your spouse, you are committing a grievous offense by not only violating creation order, but by betraying the covenantal relationship established by God with your spouse. And in so doing, in so doing, you cause great harm. I think that's what Malachi refers to when he speaks of covering your garment with violence. You're, you're doing harm. Divorce has a ruinous effect on your spouse and, and on any children in your home. Remember, Malachi says the whole reason God designed marriage to be an inseparable one flesh union is because he was seeking godly offspring. So just think about it. If a child grows up watching his parents treat their covenant relationship, their marriage covenant, as negotiable, well, then it's no surprise if that same child grows up to treat his or her covenant relationship with God as negotiable. If, if they've been seeing a covenant treated so, so meagerly and so lowly, then, then it's understandable that they will treat the covenant with God in a similar manner. And nearly just beyond your family, divorce has a ruinous effect even on the covenant community. By profaning 
the church's distinct witness and, and, and our ability to fulfill our mission as the set-apart people of God. Friends, for all of those reasons, for all of those harmful reasons, the Lord hates divorce. But what's heartbreaking is that worshipers in the temple in Malachi's day and, and in the church in our day, many worshipers don't see divorce or mixed faith marriages as displeasing to the Lord. And they just continue to bring offerings of praise without realizing that God is offended. Or if they do realize that God is rejecting their worship, they're not making the connection with their covenantal faithlessness in marriage. Listen to verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So this is the second thing they're doing. The first thing was just their covenantal faithlessness. And now they, they still go and, and they worship God thinking that there's no problem. And, and notice how they experience the sorrows that you would expect to result from cases of divorce or cases of mixed faith marriages. There are tears There is weeping and groaning. You can expect that from those circumstances. But the question is whether this is merely worldly sorrow that really leads you to nowhere. Or is this godly sorrow that leads you to repentance? Now, what does repentance look like? What does repentance mean in these circumstances? Well, for those of you who right now you're just merely contemplating divorce. It's something that, 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 that's on your mind. You, you feel an urge, but you haven't actually talked about that. You haven't drawn a line in the sand. What this means for you, repentance in this case, would mean to not rush headlong into it, but to examine your heart, to guard your spirit. And repentance looks like asking for others in your life, to be praying for you, to be keeping you accountable. It it looks like seeking counseling, seeking support for you and for your troubled marriage. And for those of you who right now you're in a mixed faith relationship, but you're not yet married, repentance means not to rush to the altar, but to seriously consider the consequences of the inevitable collision of your lives. But You know, what's even more challenging is to determine what repentance looks like for those who are already divorced or who are already in a mixed faith marriage. Well, for those of you who are divorced, repentance would mean not rushing into a second marriage, but to seriously examine the biblical arguments for the legitimacy of remarriage, to search the scriptures and to seek that in whatever you do next, that it does please the Lord according to the word of the Lord. And for those of you who are in a mixed faith marriage, repentance certainly means to acknowledge and to confess to the Lord that you have displeased him by, by not marrying in the Lord. But at the same time, at the same time, it certainly does not mean abandoning or divorcing your unbelieving spouse. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7 says you are to remain loyal to your marriage covenant. And it goes on to say that your unbelieving spouse and, and any children in your home are made holy because of you. In, in, in the sense that they are now living under the same roof as you and that they are regularly under your gospel influence. That's still a good thing. But of course the question is, whether you are influencing them or are they influencing you? That's the important question. Friends, I realize that these verses have cut some of you to the heart pretty deep. You're feeling uncomfortable hearing all of this preached. But rest assured, though a, scalpel, a surgeon's scalpel feels uncomfortable, the goal is always good. It's for your healing. It's for your wholeness. So let me end with an emphasis on hope, on the hope of godly offspring. Now, as we've already noted, mixed faith marriages and divorce betray God's intent for all marriages, but especially the marriages of his covenant people, for he desires our children to be raised in a gospel-rich context so that they too, might be saved and share in the faith of their parents and to continue a spiritual legacy in our family. That's the hope of godly offspring. But you could argue, you could argue that an even deeper concern was underlying the need to preserve a distinct Jewish identity in the days of Malachi. It was the messianic hope of a godly seed to come through Israel. You see, that phrase, godly offspring, can be literally translated seed of God. And that harkens back to the Genesis 3 promise that the seed or the offspring of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. And that messianic promise that's preserved in the lineage of Israel just gives us a deeper significance to the hope of godly offspring. Because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, the seed of God, the true offspring of the woman to redeem us from our sins. And unlike Israel before him, he remained faithful to the covenant and he gave his life and he shed his blood to secure for us a new covenant enacted on better promises. So friends, what this means is that no matter what choices you have made in the past, even if those choices displease the Lord at the time that you made them, the message of the gospel says that you can always be forgiven and that your life can still right now be pleasing to the Lord if you place your faith, if you put all of your hope in the seed of God, in Jesus, the Messiah. And when it comes to your marriage, your hope for renewed love and commitment towards your spouse, spouse your, your hope for renewed strength to be faithful to your vows is also found in the godly offspring who is ever faithful to us, who will never leave us and never forsake us, who will never break his covenant with his bride. This is the Jesus of our gospel. Let's go to him now in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your never-ending, faithful, 
committed covenantal love to your bride, to us who believe in you, who trust in you. And I pray now that that love, that grace, that forgiveness may shower down upon those who are feeling uncomfortable and hurt by this word. But Lord, we know that your word pricks them in order to heal them. And so heal their hearts now. Help them to have renewed faith in their forgiveness in Christ and renewed love in their commitments to their covenant, whether their covenant to you or the covenant to their spouse. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up from among us a covenant community that is loyal and faithful with our highest allegiance to Christ and that we would be able to raise up godly offspring, not by our own doing, but by your grace through us, that the children represented by the families in our church would all come to a saving knowledge of Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh Lord, we pray all these things for your glory and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.